0: to The Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia
1: home. Would you ever take in a child that wasn't your own? If you're imagining a relative or a friend's child, the answer might be a simple, yes, of course I would. But what if you didn't know the child? And if once you got to know them, bond with them, and love them, they could be taken away? That's the reality of foster parents across the world. In today's episode, we hear the story of one family who are raising five children, including two foster children on a remote cattle station in Australia. To add an extra layer of complexity to the situation, the foster children are Indigenous and the foster family are not. As you're about to hear, it has been one of the hardest, yet most rewarding experiences for our guest. It was an incredible privilege to be able to record and now share this episode. It's been in the making for a few years And finally, the stars aligned and I was able to make a special trip to record it. Please note that we have chosen to de-identify all names and locations in this episode to ensure anonymity. While the family was consulted about doing the episode, this is one person's story and we need to respect the privacy of the children involved. To start our episode, I asked our guest how and why she signed up to become a foster parent.
0: Just saw an ad on the bank teller or something about have you considered being a foster carer? And I just thought, oh, you know, we're pretty normal people. This is in at the ANZ or something. So, rang up and put our names down, didn't hear anything. We had another, you know, had our own child before we, you know, were newly married. And yeah, we're pretty ignorant before we put our names down to be foster parents. And we're still very ignorant when we. Uh, to the difference between what you're dealing with, with a foster child and your own biological child. We went into it completely blind.
1: I guess, was there anything more to it? Like, I didn't
0: really, uh I suppose I'm quite an impulsive person anyway, but I was also aware of, not completely aware, but aware that there were people that were a lot worse off than me. I've always been aware of that and had certainly seen some, people that were much worse off when I had worked in the mining industry years ago, uh, which is what, you know, made me want to go and do medicine as well, just seeing the way that some people, oh, I lived with terrible diabetes and glaucoma and um, uh, that was more in the arc. Like, I was horrified. I'd grown up in a really, really protected, isolated, idealistic little life, you know, on a new land block with mum and dad and lovely, you know, loving parents. And there wasn't any real poverty where I grew up. So I hadn't ever seen that sort of thing before. And so I was aware that, and you know, we grew up as Catholics, I was always aware that there's people worse off than you. And I just saw this ad and, you know, I had a picture of a kid with a, you know, looking sad on a, maybe at school or something with you know, none of the books that the other kids had. I can't remember what the ad was, but I just thought, oh, you know, we're not, we're not bad people where I'm, um, I i do not know much about parenting, but as long as you're a good person, you can give a bit of love, then that's surely that's mostly what it involves. And yeah, so that's what made us put our names down. Um, yeah, so we just put our names down, rang the local number and put our names down and didn't hear back for
1: three years. Wow. It's, it's, so something you'd kind of done and then, yeah, hadn't heard back, went on to have your own biological children. And then did you just get a phone call one day?
0: Yeah. So I was pregnant with number two and number one was about one years old. Uh, and then just got a phone call out of the blue. And so I just said, yeah, sure. No worries. You know, it was not a definitely a permanent thing because it was a very strong. Uh, policy, I guess, uh, at the time to to keep Indigenous children with Indigenous families. So it was, you know, it was made clear that it would be a temporary thing. To the point where I actually had to fly to Perth for, uh, you know, medical checkup and wasn't allowed to take our foster daughter with us just because we weren't sort of allowed to be seen, almost <laughs> not, you know, in public. I guess because she was an indigenous child uh so yeah it just came out of the blue and this poor little button arrived she's only two and a half turning three yeah she's in a pretty pretty bad way and but it was amazing it was great for our daughter as well they were great mates they got on really well and uh yeah it was lovely
1: what was the process you had to go through between applying and getting that phone call and actually receiving a child? What kind of hoops did you have to jump through?
0: Uh Well, back then, and it was a good probably 15 years ago, not a whole lot to be honest. They didn't even come and look at where we lived so to do a house inspection or anything, but we did have to sit down. We went through maybe – one or maybe two lots of interviews which we just did when we happened to go to town which was very rarely but every now and then we used to go in for something and they were just get interviews about you know your parenting how you discipline a child those sort of things and obviously you know they were very clear about you can't abuse a child you can't hit a child or um, you know as punishment etc uh yeah, but that was really about it. It was just more about your – um I can't even remember what the questions were, to be honest, but I remember there was a how do you discipline children uh, was one of the questions for doing something wrong and maybe they had some scenarios that what would you do if this
1: or if that. But that's all I really remember. What were your expectations coming into this? Well, I hadn't spent
0: enough time in town to be – Absolutely positive, I guess, because I really had come straight from the city, straight to the station, and you know town is a good three and a half hour drive away, so we hardly really hardly ever went into town, and we had a mail truck once a week. So I assumed that there was a possibility that the child might be indigenous or possibly uh, Asian as well or Caucasian. I didn't, yeah probably 50% chance, I guess I had guessed, but it wasn't a factor of putting our names
1: down. We just sort of, whichever little kid needs help, we could, I felt like we could help. Did you have any expectations on, I guess, what kind of age child you would get or, or I guess, coming into this and not having done it before, what, what situation they would be coming from and what you would have to deal with or, or was it kind of... Just thinking you get a child that needs to be kind of looked after, fed, clothed, loved. Um, which is obviously what you do, but there was a lot more that came with what you ended up. Yeah. Doing. Look,
0: actually, before, now that you say that, I rewind a bit because I remember before, before we had our own children, I was happy to take on any kid. Uh, and I'd actually, when I first left school, worked on a station. And they had, they were involved in a program where they had kids that were disengaged teenagers. they were around 15. And there were two kids that went through while I was working there and one didn't work out. Um, poor little poppet, but you know, I was only literally turning 18 that year. Uh, but the other kid, it totally changed her life being on the station. Amazing. And yeah, a uh, bit of, quite a bit of tough love, but the, the woman that ran the stations and the, and the, the, ma- the Couple that ran that particular station were amazing people and they were, they were a, a lot about tough love and hard work. Um, but they were just salt of the earth, amazing people. They were incredible and they really did. They had her best interest in heart at heart and they had little younger kids of their own. But I lived with the, the child up, you know, away from the house and it was just the two of us there and the family. Uh, so I had that in mind when I saw the foster ad, even though I knew that they weren't actually fostering those kids. But so I was happy to work with any age before we had our own children. But then once understand having that tiny bit of insight into what those two girls had been through, which was one of them was particularly horrific, I once we had our kids, it was um, was very clear on the fact that we couldn't have. Children much older than our than our children, and younger the younger the better
1: probably. Mm. I guess in that sense that I guess the older they are, the more time there has been to have damage, and and you kind of have to weigh up what you can take on while still managing your own family.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess what I was most concerned about was how it might affect our children, and if you had an older kid with some really serious behavioural problems. You wouldn't want them to, that behaviour to be observed and, and affect or the actual child to affect your children, you know, and the way they're doing things. So, yeah, that was definitely a consideration. Tell me about the first time you met your foster daughter. So the first time they brought her out, oh, she was a tiny, scrawny little thing and um, really beautiful, you know, beautiful, big eyes and just so, yeah, gorgeous kid, really, really shy and uh, really, just really shy. It took ages for her to come out of her shell. She was just bamboozled. She didn't really know what was going on, I don't think. You know, she was only two, so she was sort of just the foster, you know, the DCP worker just came and dropped her off with a bag of nappies and a bag of, Clothes and, um, gave us her name and sort of, hi darling, my name's and, uh, introduced us all. And she just sort of wandered around a bit lost, like a little two year old. She really didn't, yeah, didn't seem to miss anything or it was all very foreign to her. Obviously, I think she'd been in hospital. So she'd been cleaned up and treated for. You know, she had scabies and lice and things like that. So, she'd been treated for all of that. And yeah, she was nonverbal, though, and yeah, still in nappies. And yeah.
1: So, I guess you thought if you if you'd had a younger child, there may be less less that less time for things to happen to them. Yeah,
0: for, yeah. She was but, just a little girl. You know, she was only a, not even a whole year older than our daughter at the time. So. We felt
1: like it was fine. Yeah, still a toddler, pretty much. And so you you had her for a few months the first time. Mm. Um, what what, were the, what was that time like? Oh, we just fell in love with her really quickly. She's she's a gorgeous she's
0: a gorgeous human being, full stop. But um but she's a lovely, really sweet little kid, and learned a lot. You know, like we went into the markets once, and she we didn't pick this up at the time, but she had dyspraxia, so she her tongue muscles weren't communicating properly, so she wasn't, which was part of her speech problem, but she, she often didn't swallow food and stuff. And she was just, I think she was too shy to say when she didn't like something to eat. And there was a, yeah, there was a lot of things that we learnt just from that short period of time. A lot of uh, dummy spits Cause she'd been used to her much, her very young sister who was only eight or nine at the time being her main caregiver. And, uh, so she was just used to being carried everywhere, which I wasn't going to do. <laughs> I had another bun in the oven. So, um, so making her walk it she'd spit the, you know, spit her chewy quite a bit. So there was a bit of, you know, battle of wheels here and there. Um, just getting her to walk around. But she played so well with, our elders. uh, elders. another thing was, yeah, when we went to the dyspraxia, she, we bought her a muffin at the markets and then we, uh, walked around to Target, which is like a couple of blocks away and the muffin had all disappeared and she was really quiet. We went into Target because I had to get her some clothes. So we we're looking at the clothes and then she sneezed muffin all over, <laughs> all over the clothes in Target because she just, held it in her mouth and not swallowed it. I think she didn't like it and she didn't want to swallow it. I don't know if it was a textural thing or whether it was a dyspraxia, I'm not sure. But so yeah, there were a few, um, and she didn't have the verbal skills to say, I don't like this. Can I spit it out? Or, you know? So um yeah, there were yeah, it was quite a strange thing. But she, but look, she loved art. She just painted, loved painting and playing in the sandpit and all that stuff that two and three year old Uh, you know, one, two, three-year-olds, you know, one and a half and uh, do together, they had a great
1: time. Mm. At that stage, because you'd only had her for a few months, do you, and I guess you don't know how long you might have her for, do you still use your name or do you try and become mum? Like when do you, how do you know when to, because I know there are a lot of foster kids that call their foster parents mum and dad, like how do you know when to start trying to?
0: I just let that happen organically both times. I I called well, not with um, second, but um, I I introduced myself as my name, and uh, so does my husband. Um, But they often just they just ended up calling us, just like all the other kids do. Yeah, and you feel like that after a while, anyway.
1: What were the circumstances under which she left your care? So. I actually had to leave in a bit of an emergency
0: and I was pretty heartbreaking. Uh I had a ruptured placenta from attending an accident when number 2 was butter jelly bean in my womb and ruptured the placenta and I had a bit of trouble uh with that for the rest of the pregnancy and um I was about 7 months and had a bleed from the from the, the previous accident you know when i was not even three months so and started contractions here at the station which would have been not good so flew me into town and to the hospital there which was quite horrendous with a new maternity ward and didn't have hot water or enough electrical plugs in that room or anything it was very disconcerting Uh, and my legs up in stirrups with that new doctor, junior doctor down the end going, has anyone done this test before? I don't know how to do it. And I'm just, oh. Anyway, uh, I had to end up RFDSing to, to stop the premature birth. You know, lungs weren't developed enough to be born. And so, yeah, they drove out. I had to notify them that I had to leave. We did have, we'd left our, our biological daughter and our foster daughter in the care of, Two families, uh, one who had working with children clearance that were, happened to be working here at the time. But, um, yeah, they came out and collected her that day and took her away and we didn't see her again for, was heart, it was horrible, heartbreaking. I had to stay pretty much on bed rest for two months until, uh, number two was born. And as soon as I got back up, I rang up and said, Oh, I'm fine back to back and you know, we can, have a uh, little girl out again, and I know oh, we found another family for her, and that was it. I, you know, rang around, and and it was tough. I also had those mum hormones going, <gasps> turned into a bit of a bit of a nutter, maybe, and maybe rang the department a few too many times because <laughs> I was really worried about her. I'd inquired enough to know that where she was, and to know that she'd been moving families fairly regularly. And, yeah, that she went through several different families over the next two and a half years.
1: So you didn't see her again for two and a half years? No,
0: I'd actually sort of – I really mourned her leaving. I was really sad. Not that I expected her to definitely be with us forever at the time, but I had, you know, just fallen for her because she was so beautiful and it was more about I didn't feel like she was in a great – Place, because I knew how much she needed so much care. We'd just worked out, we'd just started speech therapy. So we'd just worked out, you know, in the last month, um, worked out the dyspraxia issue. So we'd started speech therapy and we'd come so far in her behavioral, you know, she'd just cracking the, you know, spitting the chewy all the time. We'd come so far in that behavior and getting her to try new foods other than baked beans, you know, and getting her veggies and, you know, she just was you know, strong and healthy and vibrant and loud and noisy like a typical, you know, two-and-a-half-year-old. And And I just felt like that would not continue in the some of the places that she was. Just too many kids in one
1: home for a kid that needs that extra help. It just sounds extra gut-wrenching because it was through no fault of your own, Mm. like you hadn't done anything wrong. You had a a medical issue and – and it's a real shame that she wasn't able to stay with at least your partner and and you know like it's not like they're going to take the rest of your biological kids away like mm-hmm. those kids are if if i feel like if it was good enough for those kids to still be parented
0: and yeah. and left
1: in your care and your in your husband's care then yeah. it's just
0: i think it, it just depends on who's running the show at the time which was the uh, not even our town office but um, the regional center instead. Uh, so, and there's just that policy that if there's a, a better place that's more culturally
1: appropriate,
0: then, um, then that's where they should be.
1: And so, so I guess, like you said, you'd mourned her. You weren't expecting her to come back into your care, but two and a half years later, you got the call again.
0: Mm, yeah. There was a big event in the region, big flood. And yeah, we were down. Oh, so by then I was down in around Christmas uh, having number three or pregnant with number three um, who wasn't due till May, so I wasn't heavily pregnant yet. Yeah, got this phone call the day before Christmas saying, oh, uh, do you think you could have another placement? And, I, you know, after not hearing from them for two and a half years at all. Oh, no, sorry, I did do a bit of respite care in between, which is just when you... Um, so we still had our name down to have kids out when their foster carers need a break. So we had had a couple of kids in between and just for short periods of time, just literally for, to give the parents a break. Yeah, got this call and I said, oh, look, I'm just, um, you know, three or four months off having a, another bambino. And they told me her name and I just went, Oh my God. Yes, of course we can have her. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, and fortunately by then as well, all of that, the, the placement, you know, I think they prioritized the care of the child over, um, the culturally appropriateness of the family at that time was not the, main priority the main priority was the the you know, well-being well-being of yeah well-being of the child so she came back and oh, i was like we'd gone you know 10 steps backwards still nonverbal and still you know had not been to school or all the basics were not there all the basics kind of fending for herself i think Yeah, so the, so it was pretty tough. She was, and that, that when she came and got dropped off the second time, she was beside herself. You know, she was just screaming and she's so confused. It's probably that was the fourth move she'd had or fifth move she'd had in two and a half years. Uh, and a lot of the moves were because of this behaviour, which is from a post traumatic (laughs) stress place, you know, that's why. And, She, yeah, was pretty traumatic that first day and our kids were amazing, you know. They were so, oh, it's okay, come for a swim with us. And, you know, they are so beautiful and trying to help her and being really kind. And, look, it was tough that first day, really tough. She wouldn't, She, I don't think she'd had a shower for a long time. So to get her in the shower, it's like she was scared of the shower. I literally held her. Fully closed and we went in the shower together because she was so scared and she actually even the first time when she was younger going in the bath. So she, she ended up in the bath, but she would not get in that bath for love nor money for about three weeks. She was terrified of it until and we, so I'd have her in the shower and, uh, while. That our eldest was in the bath so we could you know she could see but she was it took about three weeks to get in the bath yeah but same thing held her in the shower and took her clothes off in the shower and yeah showered her in the and by the end she was you know within a week she was back into that routine but yeah we sort of had to start again with everything the speech gosh i need to go and watch some, we, had lots of old home movies and stuff, need to watch it all to remind myself. But yeah, she was still an amazing kid, as in she'd captivate our other two, you know. So we had, by then, how old would they have been? Um, Sort of, you know, around three and four uh, years old. And she would sit up on the end of the veranda pontificating these amazing stories with all these hand gestures. And I could not understand a word that she was saying. She'd be, because of her speech problem, and really it sounded like gobbledygook to me. However, our kids would just be sitting there cross-legged, spellbound by these amazing stories. It was hilarious. Anyway, uh, and she fitted right in. There was a lot of behavioural issues. I think everyone, family and friends, would be on holidays and I'd spend a lot of time. We did the one, two, three magic thing. And so I spent a lot of time in the car at the beach with uh, a little one screaming her lungs out. Everyone <laughs> probably thinking I was abusing her or just things like, okay, it's time to get out of the pool now. Total meltdown. Um, so I'd have to, that's one, that's two, and then physically remove her. I'm sitting in the car for five minutes with her screaming at the top of her lungs, um, which was pretty embarrassing because people don't know. They look at you. She's clearly not my biological child and they probably thought I was abusing her. So you got a lot of looks, which are just cringy. But yeah, was it those, the next two years after that were really hard work with behavior. Uh, and starting primary school, starting pre-primary in the classroom and I was teaching her and my eldest. That was really, really challenging. Yeah, it was a tricky two years, tough, much tougher than I was prepared for. I really wasn't. If it hadn't have been for family and friends, um neighbours, they're amazing and my sister was oh, out of this world amazing, as were my parents'. They were so incredible and so supportive. I don't know if I could have – and my husband, obviously. I couldn't have done it. Flying solo, I wouldn't have been able to do it. It was really hard work with the other kids, yeah.
1: I was just about to ask you what kind of support you received. But it's one thing to have the support of family and friends, but dealing with behavioural issues and trauma – is something that people can go get a PhD in. Like mm. there's a lot to it. So were you provided any support from the department or other services to help you understand and cope and learn? Cause it's not something we all just have within us innately. It's, it's something you really have to, to go and study and, and need. Yeah,
0: yeah it totally is. And you know, I was, I really wasn't prepared for what. I wasn't prepared for that second round because no, so much more had happened, obviously, in those two and a half years. And I guess it took me a while to reach out to the department and say, shit, I'm not really far out. I don't know what's wrong. I can't fix her. She just, you know, she was having serious meltdowns, as in smashing everything in the classroom and ripping down all the artwork and really, really huge meltdowns. Uh, and it wasn't until I finally did ring up and say, I just, I don't, I think she's too broken for me to fix. I don't know. I don't know what to do. You know, I just thought consistency and, you know, firm boundaries, consistency, love, nutrition, you know, reading a story, you know, all that stuff, tucking into bed, um, would work eventually. But then it wasn't until They put me in touch with CAMS, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service, uh, and they just opened my whole world into understanding and it really helped because I hadn't really been told anything about her prior life and why she'd been removed specifically. Uh, we'd been, we'd had visits with mum and sister and stuff, which was great, but I didn't really know the full extent of, um, her, life before and cams were able to really help in shedding a lot of light on things that totally changed the way that i saw her brain development and how it had affected you know so much happens in those first three years of life um at let alone the first five and yeah all those that trust and the you know all the reinforcing the rewiring that happens after three yeah and they sort of shed some light on the situations that she'd been in which were just unbelievable for a baby you know it still makes me teary even thinking about it that she and to see that she's bounced back to the amazing human she is now Uh, and at the time her eight-year-old sister doing the best she could you know she would have been seven or eight when she was born doing the best she could and mum who's a wonderful lady but was really ill really unwell so just getting that background and that understanding and then reading a lot of Bruce Perry and a a lot of other which Cam's put me you know gave me a list of authors to start reading um, which I did which all helped so much and actually what I had been doing was pretty much Spot on, but what understanding her background a little bit more in depth helped was with my patience and tolerance. I was ready to spit my chewy right back, you know i would never had my buttons pressed like that before. I didn't even know I had some of those buttons that she'd pressed until then, so it was actually a great personal development for my husband and myself. We both grew a lot in that time, and having gone in ignorant and half-cocked as well, thinking I was pretty good at this, our kids were nice, so I'd be a good parent. But actually, yeah, there was a lot more to it than I
1: imagined. I think it's pretty easy to look at these situations in a very black-and-white way, um, and people tend to really lean one way or the other. But uh, as we're about to discuss, it's a very complex, nuanced A situation that your foster child came from. And so I was wondering if now you could talk a bit about the social side of things and the community she came from, um, the broader community, some of the social issues, just so we can kind of paint that picture of how nuanced it really is and that there isn't, there are no simple solutions and there is no easy finger to point as to why, you know, you can't just point the finger.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Look, um, I've definitely learned so much from um meeting and I'm I am so humbled by her extended family, immediate and extended family. They are really they really are beautiful people um, and really kind and really generous. And I am so grateful that they have accepted us and as part of as part of our daughter's family. You know, they acknowledge that we're important to her. And it is so, I don't even know where to begin explaining the, it actually, I've still, I'm still, I still learning things about it even in the last couple of years when, you know, our daughters are doing year 10 in a boarding school, darling, and doing Australian history and told to watch one documentary and uh, during the COVID thing and I, I thought I'd just watch it while I was cleaning the cottage and I was watching it going, oh, my God. God, you can't be serious. There's some woman telling a story. I can't even repeat it because it'll give you nightmares. You know about how people colonize a country, and and you know, I'd I know. I did know that terrible things happen. That's how you do colonize a country, and that's how you subjugate and and diminish a uh, population by making them feel inhuman, or you dehumanize them. You know, and but some of the things that they did, and people keep. And it's so confusing because you come up here and everyone, oh, no, they're all so happy, all the Aboriginal people were so happy in the old days on the station because they lived on the station and it was all great and all rosy. But that's in that generation's memory. The damage, the real damage that had been done a generation or two before uh, and none of it was recorded because who wanted to record those dreadful, dreadful things that people did, like un believable things, not just the massacres but the the other ways that you make people feel inhuman are just horrendous. I actually watched this documentary and couldn't believe that they were showing it to, to Year 10s, the particular story and rang the school and they've stopped. They don't show that bit anymore. Um I don't think they realised because they'd said to watch the first, you know, 12 minutes of this thing. Uh, but if you kept watching from 12 to 14 minutes, this story came up which was... Gave me nightmares. And then that is carried on for generations in that. And I, I'd learned a bit about intergenerational trauma at uni and I didn't really get it. I don't, it just didn't really sink in. We don't have intergenerational trauma where, you know, in my family, but I'd learned about it, but it's not the same I, and you just don't really get it. But I'm, I've, I've started to see it and understand it a bit better now I think because I see her family are all beautiful people but just due to that continued trauma that has resulted in being stuck in the poverty cycle ultimately it is so hard to lift out of and you know some of her mob have you know they've got some of their own country back again which is awesome and so fabulous but it's been a big fight and it's taken, oh, I don't even know how to start, but I definitely see this sadness, not not only the sadness but also some other amazing quite spiritual things and I'm not a spiritual person at all, but um, things that are carried through in our daughter's genetics. It, it is not uh, environmental. It, it's, it's genetically there. There is definitely. And, I mean, there's been studies to prove now intergenerational trauma. It's, you know, pretty much indisputable. But, yeah, and I've definitely seen it in um, in our daughter. And those poor kids that are doing the best they can with the resources they have, which are not really great because... A lot of those, you know, there was a huge paternalistic attitude for years as part of the policy of dealing of Aboriginal affairs in inverted commas, you know. Uh, so people were disenfranchised completely, even of looking after their own children. Uh, so so many skills were, and the village sense of, was lost. Uh, well, not lost, obviously. There's still some really good strong culture of practices in different places, but... There's still that terrible, that bang in that poverty cycle. And then that leads to the drugs and alcohol and violence. And then it starts all over again. Yeah, and, and now
1: we're so many generations in. Really hard to get out of, really hard to get
0: out of, to drag yourself out of that. Cause it's just, especially when you've got no role models in your life, you don't know, you don't have an auntie or an uncle or a parent or a grandparent that's ever worked, you know, or if they did. I think that's why. Probably it was not difficult to, to develop a good relationship because our daughter's family were really happy that she was in the country, you know, in, on, in the bush, even though it's not her country, her people's country. I mean, it's, um, particularly, but she's out bush. So she's, and she, she's learnt, you know, she's got quite a good, she's got a remarkable sense of direction, much better than any of our biological kids. She's like a, you'd never get lost with her and she's got a lot of natural bush skills that she just already senses you know she already she was always interested in like looking at tracks and just observing small things that uh, our kids wouldn't necessarily notice and that kind of thing which is also probably genetic and maybe a bit environmental when she was little but um yeah it was quite I don't know how to yeah describe the intergenerational trauma. I don't really have the words for it. I think I need to write it down to say it to to give it any kind of justice because I was taught it and I still didn't get it until I experienced felt it, it. Yeah, from I? the
1: peripheral, I guess you experience it from the peripheral yeah. in this Was it situation? An
0: observer of it? And actually a strange thing you can cut this out if you want. This was 2 years ago now, but I was driving down a fairly notorious street, um, and I actually had the window down and was focusing on these two kids that should have been at school, but having a bit of a joke with them. They're on their bicycles, racing them to the end of the. It's a long road, and um, these naughty little boys. And uh, and so I was driving really slowly, but and I was watching the road. They were ahead of me on the road, but and this dog just ran out of nowhere. Under my front tire and then my back tire, so I oh God, pulled up and turned around, and because I'd been watching the boys, I wasn't watching the side of the road pulled up, turned around, and happened right outside a house that had lots of uh indigenous people out the front, older people um all drinking, and um you know they were very, very angry, <laughs> very angry and sad, and they I've never you know been called a white sea before but i certainly was many times that day it was really scary i sort of jumped out of the car before thinking about it too much and then thought i I might you know get beaten up or something uh anyway and all i could say i just kept saying oh my gosh i'm so sorry i'm so sorry i'm so sorry i said i'm so sorry about a hundred times a man had already picked up the dog uh, this tall skinny man and he was crying he was weeping holding the dog no one knew the dog's name and as it turned out they didn't know the owner either because they took me to the wrong person that owned the dog <laughs> it was actually another person anyway um and there was that, and, and i just realized it wasn't the dog that they were so angry or so sad about it was all the other everything that our white Land Cruiser represents in their lives that big fucking white land cruiser that is the one that takes away their kids and you know that is you know making all this money off their country. It was all that, that's what they were sad, that's what they were crying about and angry about. And you know, and I just all I could say was, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I took the dog off the man, just kept saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I love dogs. I'd never mean to run over a dog. (laughs) And, um, and walked, got led over by the, the angriest lady who actually turned out to be our youngest son's grandma. Led over to who owns, you know, I asked her whose dog it was and I'd put the dog in a plastic bag in the back of our car and went over to the lady who owned the dogs in inverted commas and, um, said, I'm so sorry, but I, I just ran over your dog. Would you like me to? bury him in the backyard, and she was just, uh, no, just get rid of it. <laughs> so anyway, uh, and I went and later I took it to the vet who just disposed of it for me, but I went back and dropped off a bunch of white lilies from Woolies and a sorry card to that lady and and later rang my um, our eldest daughter's sister who lives in that street uh, cause I was going to come, go around and visit her that afternoon and said, darling, I don't think I can go down that street cause I just ran over a dog there and I'm scared that our car will get stoned if I drive down there. And, uh, and she was, oh no, don't worry. We, everyone knows it was my dog it was her dog. <laughs> and, um, he's been, you know, biting tyres for ages and, uh, don't worry. It's all fine. And everyone knows who, you are. it's okay. It was fine. But I, I think it was just the repeating that. Sorry, sorry, so I'm so sorry. Like I said it a hundred times to those people and it was not the dog. It was so obvious to me. They were all older people. It's was just everything else that had just been so messed up for so many generations that they were sad and angry about.
1: I know for you and your family it's quite important that your foster children grow up with connection to their culture and their history and their extended family, as a white family, how do you navigate that space and try and foster that um, and encourage that to happen when you don't have that own, you know, it, it's not your culture?
0: Mm, yeah. So that's been really, that's been challenging. And, but also really, that's what I mean, actually, with the generosity of, of her family, they are so amazing. They really are. And I think they really appreciate the fact that we're doing our best to keep her in touch with them and with their culture. And I don't expect to learn it myself. It's a private thing, you know. I, but I have bought every resource I can find from their, for their particular language group. Um, you know, they had an online dictionary and, um, a great uh, botanical book actually with bush foods and all the, the names for them uh, and we have contacted so uncles because her, her mum has sadly passed so uncles and um, uncles and aunties and any relative and all the relatives are always really happy to so that all of the relatives no matter how distant are always so delighted to be to give any kind of advice or help or suggestions. And we have come up against those issues. So she's gone down to boarding school and communicating with all these other kids from further north who are talking about their totems and skin names. And so I've gone back to, with with my daughter, um, with our daughter, gone back to uncles and aunties and said, oh, what, what's, you know, our daughter's really curious about her, you know, totem and, skin names and things like that and i've just said with great sadness we were all put in the mission we weren't allowed to talk in english we got six of the best i'm sorry we weren't allowed to talk in language and you got six of the best if you were caught talking in the in language uh, and that was all no one knows anymore it's all kind of forgotten which was really really heartbreaking and maybe um and that's a big part of dehumanising a population is by, uh, you know, taking away their culture. And their identity. <laughs> yeah, and yep, a sense of identity. But the definitely has not affected connection to country Or uh, and also I keep saying to our daughter, uh, and I've said it to her sister as well, you know what, someone invented this once upon a time a long time ago like all religions were. So if you feel a particular affinity for a particular animal or plant, then just make that, you, maybe you need to start it again, you know, and you'll have to start again. And I'm sure that you'd have the blessing of your old people, of your ancestors by, you know, who am I to say that? But maybe talk to your elders about that and just start it again. Uh, try give it a crack i don't know it's worth a discussion at least but yeah as far as how hard it is to stay connected to country uh, to her mob culture um they've been so they couldn't be more welcoming and more yeah they've been amazing
1: you have two foster children and three biological children at what stage did you decide to take on another foster child and what were those circumstances?
0: So that was
1: about eight years ago. So our
0: eldest had those first two really tricky years and then just progressively became more angelic and uh, she was, you know, wonderful. And things were going well. Uh, now that we've got teenagers, it's a whole new chapter of parenting, holy bloody moly um there's a whole lot of more more personal development (laughs) happening now um but so you know our eldest then would have been uh, so 12-ish i guess uh and or 11 still here it's still a primary school so uh, or maybe yeah 10 or 11 uh so thought oh you know things are Sailing, we can, and I was conscious, you know, our eldest was conscious of being the only Indigenous kid in our family. And so I said to, yeah, just put my hand up again. And so I had a family discussion about it with all of the kids and husband. And uh, they were, everyone was, yes, you know, yes, 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 we're keen. So, yeah, so we put our name down again. We rang the local department and, Put our name down again, specifying that it would have to be younger than our youngest at the time. And yeah, and number five turned up not very long after. Yeah.
1: Now we could do a whole episode on, on number five. Mm. Um, but I guess in, in more of a nutshell, do you want to talk a bit about some of the challenges that have come? Cause I mean, every, every child is different. But again, you had another Indigenous child. Who came with their own set of challenges? Yeah, but, but again, from a very, very young age.
0: Yeah, very young age. Still a really super tough first four months of his life. Probably about as bad as it gets. And, and not first, not just the first four months, but also in utero from a very, very stressed mum. Poor darling. And yeah, so he has turned out, to, and I noticed things were not happening when they should have when he was a baby, just going through the normal stages of development, um, skipping a few at full stop. And yeah, as it's turned out, he's, um, on the spect- autistic spectrum. So, and, and ADHD. So he's certainly a challenging child to, um, yep, yeah, for, all aspects of behaviour <laughs> and at school. Uh, yeah, he's hard work but we all love him to bits and pieces and he's definitely getting easier. You know, it's improving with age and his your speech is improving which makes life a lot easier because there's not the frustration of expression which is a big issue with behaviour, being able to express themselves verbally and instead of physically. So we're getting there. But, yes, it would be a whole other podcast. But, yeah, that is hard work.
1: <laughs> is it similar with the second child as with the first one in terms of trying to keep them connected to culture and, and country and family or is it is it quite different?
0: So this one has been a bit trickier just because of the circumstances of the family Um and Dad has just reached out for the first time today actually. So uh, yeah, trickier circumstances. However, Mum is a really well-meaning person, as is her extended family. They're, but again, just stuck in a pretty, pretty hard cycle. Pretty hard to see way out of that cycle that she's in. Uh, for the for the best of us, it would be hard if you're already there. Um, who've had a great childhood it would still be hard you know to get out of it and however extended family have actually so they've been out to visit a couple of times which have been really really lovely and they've come out and don't expect anything that's you know taking their kids for a ride on the horse and they've just loved it and you know and but we bump into them in town every now and then I, i'm terrible with names and faces so i don't recognize anyone but they all recognize us and do the whole yelling after, oh, you know, our, our youngest's name, and um, I'm your cousin, and I'm your, you know, this and that, and and his brothers who I've never heard them actually speak, but but they're always in the mix with this naughty little gang of boys in, <laughs> in town, and uh, and they offer if they see us there, they are straight onto the trolley, and you know, uh, our, I was just, just telling you earlier that that I was by when if I see them hanging around I always get a cooked chook and a box of ice creams and and give them that when uh, when I come out of Woolies and they are so beautiful they help unload the groceries and they ask all these questions about whether he's got a horse at the station or a motorbike at the station and say oh yeah you've got all those things you can and work hard at school and you can come out and work on the station too it's like a really idealistic like Wow thing for them to be out on a station. You know, there's so much respect for people that work on station or live on a station from that community. It's really interesting. And, but they are beautiful kids. I know they're pretty naughty, but we actually were just in town for a school of the air thing recently. And I took our son, just he and I by ourselves down to the beach. He really loves the beach. And there were a bunch of kids over there who were all relatives and they recognized us. They're all. Um, swimming, recognised us and, you know, part of our son's problem is social interaction. He just totally shuts down. But these kids were so beautiful and they're much older than our son, um, but they're, they're that same little group of boys and they're all, oh, come for a swim, come for a swim. And So I took, you know, half an hour to work our son around there because he's so antisocial. I'm terrified of just doesn't like people, but, um, got him around there and he, it was quite amazing. There's definitely a kinship there, um, already, even for our son. And I sat down with those boys for about an hour on the beach, took some photo, you know, asked them if it was okay to take a photo, took their photos with our son and so that he could recognize them and chatted to them and explained to them how he's, you know, ASD. And, uh, so he's just really shy and not great at expressing himself or, looking at you and talking with you. It takes a really long time for him to actually converse with someone. And they were so beautiful and understanding. They really were. It was quite remarkable and to the point where they they would have shared anything they had right there and then with him. And they were so kind and so beautiful and really respectful because I know they were swearing like little troopers when we turned up and they didn't swear at all during our hour together. And as we were leaving, they were saying, bye. I love you <laughs> to our son. So beautiful. Just such nice getting them back to the swearing, uh, you know, jargon, the, the street talk of, uh, of that town. But, and talked about how we're, we're moving into town next year. Actually, for both of our kids, youngest kids' sakes that are both still doing school of the year, they just need that social interaction. And, and our youngest needs a lot more support and told the boys how. Oh, you know, he'll be going to this, and they oh, make sure he comes to our school because we'll look after him, and you know, we all look after each other, and they're just lovely kids.
1: I'd actually forgotten during the bulk of this conversation that you live on a cattle station, even though we're sitting here on the cattle station mm-hmm. right now, and that everything you've gone through is—is is it not only everything you've been going through, but it's in this other context of being quite isolated? You know, you've got you've had a lot to deal with. With I mean, just raising. Three children, three biological children mm-hmm. is, is no mean feat. And then you've got, um, so but you've got five children. There's other, like you said, traumas and um, autism, ADHD, all these other things thrown in the mix. It's not like you can just drop them off at daycare, nice. make an appointment, and just pop down or try and get a babysitter or do this or that. It's been that I feel that adds a whole other aspect to it which really can, can make it a bit more of a pressure cooker in a way, which I guess are, are many station environments are with the isolation. What has is the impact of fostering been like on your family and your relationship with your partner?
0: Yeah, so it, that's a really valid point. And, you know, I'd never not do it. I'd never wind back time and not have fostered either of our Well, certainly, yeah, either of our kids. But but probably number five was a lot more challenging than I Anticipated or imagined, and I, as well, being older, you know, I'm about to hit 50, so just don't have the energy that I did 10 years ago, even. Well, I still feel fairly energetic, but I'm just exhausted. And I guess the thing with having a kid with those problems, it's like having a three year old for eight years, it's really exhausting mentally and physically it does your head in and so that has been a stress definitely on uh you know on me i'm the sort of i've always done all the nappies and all the toilet training and feeding and all that stuff with just with the lot with number five so and as the you know person at home with the kids the primary caregiver i guess uh so It has, it has been hard. I won't lie, but at the same time, while it's hard, I also believe that, you know, challenge and hardship is where you grow the most. And while I wouldn't say I've grown particularly gracefully, (laughs) I've sworn quite a lot through it. I've definitely grown. And it's also, I think it has, I guess too, none of our kids, our kids are so defensive of of our youngest as well. He, you know he had a really bad year last year and lit a pretty serious fire that burnt down uh, quite a portion of our home, uh, which was pretty serious and we'd had a problem with firelighting behavior. and uh, and there were there were some pe- like our, yeah, there were some people in our lives who were very, what are you doing? He's going to ruin your family. Um, pretty much, I think you should put your hands up and say you've done your best. You know, which ooh, is a horrible thought, but um, there's no way we could have done that to our kids. They absolutely love him. Like, yes, he annoys them. He breaks all their Lego, but they they really love him, and they're so defensive of him. <laughs> Even when I get mad at him for something, they'll be the first ones to go, Mum, stop being so mean." he can't help it you know um, i don't care you just can't do this this is the rules of living here um in this home you have to you can't break everything as soon as i put it up uh whatever it is you know and um but yeah they're so defensive of him and love so i think it's also while it is challenging as anyone with a child with autism would tell you it is also teaches amazing tolerance Amazing acceptance of diversity in our community to our kids who otherwise wouldn't have been exposed to it at all out here because they, it's just us. And, uh yeah, I think it's made them, uh, I think it's contributed to what I hope will be uh, beautiful people as well to all four of the older children, yeah. And for oh, he's just so, I think he's he loves uh, our family so much, you know. If we get in a car, he does a full head count, and if there's someone missing, he just totally freaks out, absolutely. Even if, we, especially if we've dropped someone off for a sleepover or something, he just oh, it's beside himself. We have to be very clear about explaining to him why someone is not in the car. You know, he just loves his siblings so much.
1: What about the local community? I think I'm sure there may be other families who foster in town, but you're the only. White family with Indigenous kids I know of in the pastoral industry, Australia wide. I mean, there may be others, yeah, uh, but I'm it, sure it's not, not very common. Um, mm. It's quite a different look, I guess you can say. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, but but with the added on of of having children with ADHD or autism and, and other issues, how mm. has the community responded? Oh, look,
0: they've been amazing. I'm sure some of them might privately think that we're mental. But they have, I've had nothing but, oh, amazing support from everyone. Everyone embraces, you know, certainly embraces our eldest as part of their, you know, she's grown up with their kids and they've all, they're like aunties and uncles to her as they are to our biological kids. Is a difficult, uh, case. <laughs> I think that's a word. He's a trickier case because he, because of the autism he's really hard to connect with. Um, but some people, interestingly, he just does, which is fascinating. Other people he's just terrified of, won't go near. I think he's oversensitive to people's intention, maybe. I think that's why he's amazing with the horses. It's crazy because he's so unpredictable in his movement, but the horses read his intention really well and they know he's no threat. Uh, like, you know, he's a really hard kid to keep, your eye on, he's just whoosh, 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 everywhere. Uh, so, yes, I think the wider community have, um, they've certainly accepted him. And even for the first time last year, got a lift, got picked up from a little day camp in at school um, by another family, and it went really well, which was like a huge, he's so mum centric. Um, that was a huge. Amazing thing. So yeah, they're, they're all beautiful. And you know, he doesn't interact with their kids very well or anything like that, but they're also accepting. They all look out for him at community events and stuff. And oh, um, I've just found so and so over there.
1: So yeah, the, the community's been amazing. You've described your experience as humbling. Can you speak to that? Um, humbling in oh, so many
0: ways being a parent is humbling anyway it just makes you realize how arrogant you are when you start out thinking that you know it all when you don't like you know seeing other parents before you've got your own kids with uh giving your kids a video to watch in the car thinking "Oh, we will never do that with our children our children will just look out the window and play i spy (laughs) until you get your children and oh my gosh if you want to stay sane get something where they can watch a movie on Yes, so humbling in that regard, certainly. And then certainly from the foster care point of view, humbling from the fact that I I was really at breaking point um with number two uh with number one, sorry, foster child. Um in those early days after sort of one and a half years in the second time round, I've just oh I just too broken for me to fix. There's something so wrong that I there's not enough love in the world to fix this, and humbling from the fact that there was so much more that I didn't understand when I thought I knew it. You know, I thought I had enough of a grasp on stuff. I'm a relatively intelligent person. I can go to the library and get a book and research stuff. And but I it wasn't until I reached out and talked to the people at CAMS that I've really that was really humbling, and and humbling seeing where. That child came from. Oh my God. Just seeing where she's ended up. She's, you know, you've met An her. An
1: incredible young woman.
0: Yeah, she really is. It, you
1: know? When I met her last year, I thought closing your eyes and disregarding everything else, you know, colour, background, everything, mm. just for the things, the way she spoke as a 15 year old. Mm. I was blown away. And then to consider everything else. Mm. you can't yeah Yeah. she's an incredible young woman
0: yeah she really is uh she's a beautiful human being so just seeing that soul that human overcoming what she did with my best intention often not executed perfectly (laughs) you know bumbling through the best that i could as a support person in her life humbling to see how she came from you know, where she did and ended up where she did. That's really humbling. And also humbled by her extended family, how accepting and how, um, gosh, open arms they have been with help and explanation. And it's made me really interested in, uh, in people's lives as well. There's a couple of older people that I catch up with every now and then. Uh, who have been recording just their stories about how they lived and and what happened to them when they were really young, when they were all taken, not even taken down south away, but taken in for, from the stations to be on the missions for, you know, and only allowed home once a year. Um, and the experiences that they had on the missions that were just oh, heartbreaking. So that's been so humbling to have these amazing old people Opening up, um, as well. But I, I've got to say, I, I find that I've found the Aboriginal community to be so generous in their knowledge and their acceptance of outsiders. You know, like me. Um, they're really that's been very humbling. They're really beautiful people.
1: How do you manage? I mean, your your eldest daughter is. Fifteen, so or sixteen now, just turned seventeen. Oh my gosh! Mm. So there's, you know, I guess is she technically in the system for a, another year then? Ah, oh, I don't know. I haven't actually looked. No, uh, I
0: think it ends when they're sixteen.
1: Oh, okay. So the chances of her being taken to another more culturally appropriate home or or taken away, those are slim to none. Oh at no, this stage. yeah, no, they're none. Uh,
0: we talked to her mum. She rest in peace, uh, and sister, and um, they signed a guardianship order. So we're actually her legal guardians now, not the department that doesn't have anything to do with her now. Is that mm. the same with your son? No, he is still just um, our foster son, but we treat we mm. we're pretty sure it's we're fairly confident, very confident that he wouldn't be going back to mum.
1: Yeah. I guess there's still that element, and it could, I, I guess it wouldn't matter what child you have, and, and it's something you experienced early on with your first child with them being taken away. Mm. How have you gone through this experience of parenthood, giving everything to these children and loving them, no different to your biological children, knowing that they could like how do you how do you live without kind of living in fear or anxiety do you
0: know I'm not the best person to talk about this because I've only had you know a handful of kids and a few respite kids some that I would love to have kept but it just wasn't the right timing for us but uh, there are I'd like to say off the bat I'm not the role model for being a great foster carer because there are some people out there who dedicate their lives to it and do an absolutely amazing job and they would have been through so much more heartbreak than that little bit that I went through which felt like the world for me at the time but I guess how I overcame that in the end is that I just felt I kept having to remind myself that I went into this to try and help another little soul have a better life Uh, so it's not about me it's about What you can, what I can give to that, what I can contribute to that little person's life. And whether they just get a glimpse of what it feels like to have three meals a day and a safe and feel safe at night and a cuddle and a kiss and a storybook in bed every night, then that is something that they might, and I'm, I'm sure that they remember. And they, even if they only get that for a short period of time, they will, remember that feeling as being good if they didn't get it again and carry it through for when they, because they'll be having children too one day and they'll do it for their kids and maybe they'll be a bit better at it and, you know, do it for a bit longer and be more consistent. You know, you're. I guess you just have to think of it as though you're not doing it for yourself to fill a hole in your own life. You're doing it to try and help another person. And you're older, uglier, wiser, and you should be able to cope with it. (laughs) That little
1: kid can't. To finish our conversation, can you share some advice for people listening who may be considering fostering or who maybe have never considered it, but after listening to your story, they are? My advice
0: would be, look, it's an amazing opportunity to contribute to society, which is I think it's in the news in every town in Australia now. It's what's happening now. It's not working. There's so many kids in strife. They're literally only taking kids away when their lives are in danger now because there's nowhere to put them. There are not enough foster carers. Uh, And people on stations in particular or rural people that like that is the best place for a kid in strife or a kid having a hard time. It's also works really well for the community for their extended community as well and yeah I, I would say the things to consider would be to make sure you've got both a, a mum and dad like a partner mum mum dad dad mum and dad whatever but both on board with it and both willing to support each other you know that would be the most important thing I don't it's not I, I wouldn't ever have tried it well I would have because I was so impulsive, but. In retrospect, I would never have done – I couldn't have done it without my husband and uh, because you just need someone to tag team when you've just had enough and you're about to explode. You need someone to tag out with, like you do with with all children sometimes. So, yeah, that would be the main consideration is that you've got your partner on board and you know what? The family had one half more on board than the other and – They've all come around. They're amazing. Our extended family. They're all great now. But yeah, that would be the main considerations.
1: Thank you so much for your time today and for being so candid, sharing your story. I really think it'll, it'll impact a lot of people, and that whether or not it's just creating another um more understanding or a different perspective or hopefully somebody will come out of this genuinely considering fostering. No, it's not for everyone. Um we're not saying that everyone should go out and do it, but Yeah, no. It's invaluable <laughs> to to be able to listen to someone's story and to be so candid and raw and honest. So thank yeah, you. Yeah,
0: my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Stan. I just thought of this beautiful story which you can include if you want. So when our eldest was still really difficult to understand and she was telling all these amazing stories, I couldn't understand them. And I, I asked my, you know, firstborn, what are these, what, what's the story about? Can you, what are you doing? they all, so they'd tell these stories and they'd always be playing this game with, oh, that's right. Always be playing this game with Chorty, this, imaginary friend, and they'd be making mud pies for Chorty and tucking him into bed and feeding him in the sand pit and reading him stories and, I love you, Chorty, and, oh, you know, all this looking after this little Chorty character. Um, for two years they all played with him, all three of the those kids all played with Chorty and really nurturing and looking after Chorty. And then one day we we're coming back from holidays and, um, and I said to our eldest and Chorty was our eldest's, you know, was her character that she'd created that our, all the other kids embraced and took on as part of their imaginary home family. Uh, and I said to, I said to her, darling, where's Chorty? I haven't heard you playing with Chorty for ages. Uh, and she said, Oh, he died ages ago. He's gone to heaven, which is, Amazing. And I actually talked to a psychologist who did her uh, thesis on uh, imaginary friends, and she'd never, ever heard of an imaginary friend dying. They usually just kind of get shelved, you know. But this child had gone to heaven, and I think, like, my take on it is that that was her alter ego. That was her nurturing herself. They were looking after herself, her, and she was all fixed now, so... Shorty could, she was all happy and content and so Chorty could go to heaven. <laughs> Didn't need to look after him anymore.